0: Media. Hey, what's up guys, Michael Portman here and this is The Edward Word, a podcast where I talk to people about their lives, their work, their passions, their challenges, and their journey from where they started to where they are today. I want to thank everybody, before we get into today's episode, I want to thank people who listened to last week's show, where we sat down with the Disability Rights Commissioner from the Human Rights Commission, Paula Ticetorio, we had 20... Twenty four, twenty five downloads of the show, so thank you so much, That that's quite impressive for me, I uh, I don't often get, uh, you know, listeners in the double digits, so thank you very much to everybody who had a listen to that show, I hope you got something out of it, uh, particularly those of course in the uh, disability community. Today I am going to be talking to Peter McGlashan, former black cap, former cricketer, Uh, he played for Northern Districts, he played for a number of different uh, teams, represented New Zealand on the international stage. Talked to him about his career, but also want to talk to him about what it's like transitioning from being, you know, he's a a sportsman to, to going into a completely different world of local politics and working at Auckland University and and working in marketing and everything that he's achieved, governance roles, etc. What's it like going from being an international sportsman to doing all that stuff? And is there, you know, a lot of people say, hey, politics and sport shouldn't mix, but I challenge you because I think that they should. And I think that they do, actually. So I wanted to talk to Peter about all of that. And uh, that is the the show today. So if you want to support uh, what we do, of course, listen to the rest of the podcast. And if you do enjoy that, uh, please uh, continue to download the show, share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues, your, your network, you know, put it on your networks, and let's try and grow this into a, uh, something pretty cool. So, so yeah, you can also uh, give us a rating over there on iTunes as well if you're listening via Apple Podcasts. But we are available on all of the uh, major major podcasting services, including Spotify. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. This is The M Word, and today my guest is former cricketer turned politician, Peter McGrath. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy yeah. New Year, buddy. How's it going?
1: Yeah, very well. Enjoying some sunshine, which is nice. It's
0: not too hot up there?
1: Uh, it's supposed to get up to 27, 28, which is kind of hot enough for me, but I'm in an office all day, so don't really notice till I go home. Definitely. Well, yeah, as I was saying, man, I, I want to talk to you about a lot of
0: different things, but first off, I think it's best to start... Like, what are you doing now? Because I'll ask you about the cricket stuff later on, but
1: because you do a number of different things up in Auckland at the moment. Yeah, so, I mean, my primary job is at AUT University. Um, We've got a campus here in Manukau in South Auckland, and I've been working there for about the last five or six years. And my role essentially is um, helping the university connect to the outside world. So uh, I work with a lot of community organisations or council organisations like Pānuku and and the local boards to make sure that the university's expertise is available to them if and when they need it and then vice versa if um, the outside world has any things that they want to learn a little bit more about uh, and the university has experts or students that are studying that stuff then it's my role to make sure that we're really well connected. So that's kind of my job four days of the week. And um, of, uh, what was it, October last year, I was elected in, onto the Maung Kiki Tamaki local board, so the local government elections which were held last year. Um, I put my hand up and um, have been doing that sort of a day and a half a week uh, since October. What, what made you want to get into local politics? Well, I guess I've been uh, doing community work in different um, roles for a while now. I guess post-cricket, a lot of my jobs have had kind of a community engagement um, bent to them and uh, the stuff that I was doing in my own personal time around some street art projects and uh, local community projects in Glen Innes, where um, me and my family live, um, we just had a lot to do with the local the local board and the local council and um, while they're doing amazing work, I also saw a few shortcomings, which I thought um, I might have uh, some strengths that could help them out. And so I kind of put my hand up and I didn't really expect to get into politics. Um, but I guess some of the things that you learn playing professional sport are quite helpful. So things like having a, having a thick skin and, um, yeah. and being able to accept public criticism and be in the public uh, eye means that when you come to politics, um, some of the things which might be a bit more daunting for other people who haven't faced um, the public spotlight um, aren't quite as intimidating. There's actually It's amazing how many sportsmen were in the local body elections um, this year. I think Kevin Mealamu was elected yep. here in Auckland and uh, Bruce Kendall, the um, former Olympian, was elected as well up here in Auckland.
0: You mentioned the thick skin element to, you know, being a, a politician and a sportsman. Um, is it also the the need to be adaptive to, you,
1: you know, the, the changing kind of wheels and the cog around you, so to speak? Yeah, particularly, I think, if you've played team sport. So uh, anyone who's played team sport can probably recognise the fact that not everyone in the change room, saw the world the same as them and that was definitely the case for me towards the end of my cricketing career as it's fair to say that the conversations that we'd have during warm-ups or in the change room as guys read the newspapers we weren't didn't all agree with uh, how the world was working um, but that's kind of part of team sport. You have to get the best out of each other, and sometimes the person which you don't get on with that well might be a really important member of the team, and if you can't get the best out of them, then uh, ultimately you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve.
0: Would what, what you say, it's, it's
1: interesting what you just said there,
0: I mean, everything's political, right? You know, there, there's some people that say that, Sports and politics shouldn't mix, but I let like you just said, I would imagine, and I often think about this. Actually, you know, in the case of a, a team, say the Black Caps or whoever, you know, you're reading the the press um, quite often about yourselves. Um, what impact does that have on the on the environment?
1: Yeah, it's a good observation. I mean, uh, obviously a lot of people have said sport and politics shouldn't mix. And I guess in New Zealand, we've been at the forefront of that with the apartheid um, protests and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the role that sport has played because sport's so popular in New Zealand. But if you go back to what the definition of politics is, it's essentially empowering someone else to make choices on your behalf. So it's impossible to extract politics from anything. Anytime we give someone... Uh, the right to make decisions on our behalf. That's politics. So that's that's trusting the people who run the city to uh, make sure the bins are collected on the right days. It's trusting your doctor to look after you when you go into the hospital. Anytime you're empowering someone else uh, to act on your behalf, that is politics. So it's, it's virtually impossible to separate it out from life, from sport, from healthcare, from education. Um, and that's probably a lack of education about what politics is, is, is why we see this need to to keep them separate. But um, as far as the changing room goes, yeah, again, you're right. It's a, it's a case of understanding what other people need from the situation, how to get the best out of them. Um, and politics and sport uh, are inseparable. We've, we've all got stories of uh, little Johnny's dad picking him when he shouldn't have been in the team for the under-12s or... Uh, a a noisy parent lobbying a a coach or a selector because their son or daughter hasn't made a team. Um, So it is pretty difficult to separate them. And I think uh, the sooner we learn the role that politics can play and the good and bad things that it um, contributes to society, I think we'd all be much more um, conscious of how relevant those things are when they come around and and um, the fact that if we don't vote, We can't
0: complain, really. I guess it's also a a potential win for the public because, you know, I know, I mean, in the recent series in Australia, you know, there's there's always talk about selections in a team and, you know, favouritism and all this. Um, I guess if if there was a bit more, um, I guess the sports body started talking about politics more, there, there might be a bit more willingness for people to understand, you know, yeah, there is certain stakes involved in favouritism in
1: sports. Yeah, I think uh, transparency is really helpful with those things, um, even up to the highest levels. You know, there there are some things that the Prime Minister or the President can't tell us, Uh, And that's to keep us safe. Um, But we need to be able to trust that they'll make the right decisions at the right time. And it's transparency of those decisions along the way that help give us the confidence that democracy is working and and that when we vote for the person, uh, it's the right choice. And you're right, if the selectors are open about how they select the teams and what the process is, and sporting organisations are very clear about who the selectors are and the types of things that they value, then we would be less surprised when some of the decisions are made. Um, you know, talk back radio is always going to have its place, and it's really important that the fans feel like they've got a voice. In this day and age with social media, I don't think anyone could ever be criticised for not having a space where they can uh, share their piece. Uh, but sporting bodies, if they want to keep fans engaged, you're right, they do need a place or at least a, an avenue where they can be transparent mm-hmm. and um, the fans can speak directly to the organisation. Oh, this is going to be a really good interview,
0: man. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I guess with what you're doing um, in the local politics scene, what are some of the, uh, you, you know, the outcomes that you want to achieve in that role?
1: Well, I guess it's a um, it is a little bit of a frustrating role in the fact that it's very much part time um, and it's three years, and you're effectively the voice of the public for some for a large organisation for Auckland Council, which has to deal with you know one and a half almost two million people's problems, and you're constantly balancing the the squeaky wheel and yep. the person who's in your ear about their one thing that they need to get fixed versus the twenty or 30,000 people who also use that road or that community park or that space for their own things. And so good governance is about balancing um, the voice of the individual versus the voice of the collective. And um, you know, yesterday I had a great day uh, at Waikaraka Park watching the Golden Oldies Cricket Tournament that's run there. Um, but it's run by a group of people who kind of sit apart from Auckland cricket and they see themselves as slightly rebellious and not necessarily conforming to uh, to the big brother that runs Auckland cricket. And so, again, you're trying to balance um, the governing entity, which is Auckland cricket, which looks after the sport regionally, versus these really localised problems and, and the things that these people are very passionate about. Um, and so, you know, if, at least if I can feel that those people... Have a sense of being heard, um, and that they see some progress over the three years, regardless of what that might be or what their their axe to grind is. Um, then hopefully they feel like democracy has taken place, and they understand at least if the decision hasn't gone their way, they understand why I and the rest of the board had to make the decisions we did. There's a big part of that role for you,
0: you know, involved, like you said, getting out to these events and, um, you know, communicating
1: with these people yeah communication's a big part of it, and um, I guess the criticism of of politicians in general, um, and particularly worldwide over the last few years since Trump and Co have gotten is the fact that they you know supposedly holier than now and, and they sit above the the masses and they make their own decisions without considering um, the people who are on the ground um, but local body politics is a really good example where in many ways, I'm anonymous. Nobody, yeah. You know, unless uh, yesterday, a few people recognised me as a former cricketer. They they were asking which of the Golden Oldies teams I was going to play for and whether I'd hit 40 yet. Um, But it was nice to be able to say to them, look, I'm actually here because I'm a local body elected uh, official and, you know, we overlook this park. It's one of the assets within our region and I want to know whether it's serving um, the needs of your sport and what you want to do. So um, it can be a bit of a challenge, but it's also great to get down because we did a lot of door knocking during the campaign, trying to get people's votes. And it's really important that um, all those promises that were made on the campaign trail, um, you know, we at least follow through or, or close the loop. You mentioned there about people, um,
0: excuse me, people, you know, recognising you as Peter and the New Zealand cricketer, right? In your role, I guess, was that always going to be a challenge for you? Um, You you know, like trying to bridge, like get away, I guess, from, yes, you want to use all the skills that you've learned from that career, but I, I'm guessing what you want to do in this role is actually you don't want to do it, you know,
1: just because you're a cricketer. Yeah, and um, I guess I needed to make it clear to those guys yesterday that I won't, yeah. wasn't going to be favour, you know, I wasn't going to favour them just because I was a cricketer. That I'm an elected official by all the members of um, the Monki Tamaki community, uh, and again, that's what good governance comes down to. You kind of put. You carry your experience with you to the door, and that helps you make the decision, but you also park those alliances and those allegiances outside the room, and you make the decision based on the evidence that's presented to you. So, um, you know, I I didn't play many games for New Zealand, and so it's pretty rare when I do get recognised as a cricketer. Uh, And most of the jobs that I've had outside of cricket, uh, many people have no idea that I even... Ever played cricket, um, and that's been quite a refreshing thing to know that um, you know I've got all the jobs that I have based on my what I put in front of them. Um, there was an interesting uh, story from Dion Nash when he finished cricket, you know, he was very conscious of wanting to step away from Dion Nash, the cricketer and become Dion Nash the businessman, and I think, you know, you'd have to say he's been pretty successful at that. And I guess I was a similar type person who, um, you know, I didn't have the accolades or the the um, brand recognition that he did as a, as a, a very successful black caps cricketer, um, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that when I chose the next chapter of my life um, that I was being judged on um, – not just because the person liked cricket; it was because they thought I was the best person for the job.
0: So, Peter, for you, um, transitioning from being a sportsman, being a black cap, into what you're doing now, um, you know, what was that process like? Was it
1: something that you you had a lot of support in? Yeah, I mean, the players' association have got um, uh, have got player development officers in place, and. Um, yeah, they do a really good job of helping players understand kind of what the next steps can look like. Um, for me, I was always... I never got a New Zealand contract while I was playing, so I was always on a six-month domestic contract, which meant I was always unemployed every winter. And um, I had some mates who... Um, Travelled to the UK, played each you know played summer in New Zealand, summer in the England, summer in New Zealand, summer in England, and that was awesome. And I did that a few times as well. But you did get the sense that they were kind of living a bit of a Peter Pan lifestyle where they were never going to grow up, um, and it did mean that when they got to that point where they were forced to retire, they didn't have too many options. So I really made sure in the last five or six years that I um, tried lots of different things. Um, did a couple of years working at, at Sky TV. Did a Uh, some brand and marketing work, some product development for Aero. And it did kind of mean that all of those things added up to having, uh, I guess, a range of skills uh, when I was looking for job opportunities after cricket.
0: Is it something that, you know, sports are like, these are cricket, I guess, are they more, are they better now at, you know, setting players up for, you know, for after the career, I guess we live in a different world, though. You know, with you know brand endorsement, social media, and stuff. But is there still room um, to do
1: more in that space? Yeah, each of the sports do it slightly differently. Um, so, New Zealand cricket kind of effectively leave it up to the players' associations, the cricket players' association, to do that for them, um, and that's just the the working relationship that they have. Uh, Rugby Players Association are a little bit the same, although I think uh, New Zealand rugby employ the player development officers as opposed to the Rugby Players Association employing them, so they have a slightly different structure. Um, But it is an important step to take because um, the sports extract everything they can out of these athletes while they're playing and then kind of just discard them as the next generation come through and if they're not careful, it can add up to some, you know, some pretty tough stories later on in life, where athletes have got used to a particular lifestyle, and then that's been ripped out from under them because due to an injury or, or a lack of form and, and a, a selection decision, and then they're just kind of discarded. And I guess we're fortunate in some ways that in New Zealand that the money isn't too astronomical, and and that the fall isn't quite as far. Um, there's a really good. Um, ESPN 30 for 30 around um, American sports and kind of how far some of those athletes have fallen. There's a horrible statistic around the percentage of athletes who have um, gone bankrupt within, you know, three or four years of finishing playing, even though they were on 10 or 12 or $15 million contracts. uh, Somehow they managed to blow all that and, um, you know, the, the other 30 or 40 years of their life because that's, that's the reality for most professional sportsmen and women. Um, yeah. After they retire playing from sport, they've still got to work for 30-odd years probably unless they've made astronomical money and, um, you know, they'll go back to a normal day job and uh, if they haven't got their finances sorted, they'll be potentially set up for a bit of a fall.
0: With the, you know, the structure around being a, a sportsman, are you? Is it sort of like you're paid in, in one go, or do and you have to manage that, or are you sort of paid like
1: fortnightly, or how's it work? Yeah, that's a that's a good question actually. Um, uh, just like normal work, it's all very different uh, depending on what you're doing. So, for cricket, uh, and I think it's still the same. It's been about eight years since I retired, but um, you've got a a, a contract, a domestic retainer, so. If, um, Back when I was playing, I think the number one. So your domestic northern districts, for instance, would rank the team, the players one to twelve at the time. There were twelve contracts, and the top one was like thirty-three or thirty-four thousand, and the bottom one might have been fourteen or sixteen thousand, and there was no negotiation. Um, it was just purely your number one, your number two, your number three, and therefore this is how much money you get, and those contracts were then. Uh, paid monthly, I think, from memory on the first of the month for the six months that that contract worked. And then obviously for cricket, you also get a match payment. So for each game that you play, you were also getting maybe $1,000 for a for a one-dayer and maybe 1500 for a four-dayer or something. And so those payments had to change based on whether you were selected or not. Um, Uh, Whereas the contract was a sort of a flat rate where they just divvied up the amount spread over the six months. Um, But all sports are different, you know, football will be different, Um, rugby will be different. And, you know, how those payments are made can quite often, as you say, get people into trouble because they set their lives up based on a certain level of expenditure. Or maybe they get a big lump sum at the start of the month and they've spent it all by the middle of the month. Um, So financial literacy, in the same way that that's important for the rest of society, financial literacy is really important for athletes as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess, um, can there be, you know, could there, I guess, be more support in that area? Because we're talking quite often about really young guys, you you know, who come from, you know, who come from, you know, earning nothing, to yeah. to earning, you know, thousands of dollars. That's a huge life change, you
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's plenty of stories of young players, um, you know, 17, 18 getting their first contract and, you know, almost spending all of that money in the first week partying with their mates, uh, because all of a sudden they're the only teenager in, in town who's, you know, earning twenty-five, thirty, forty thousand dollars over dollars over a summer. Um, I think those cases are probably few and far between these days uh, because there's a lot more education going on. Um, people have seen, I guess, the the negative stories around people doing that and they've stepped in and, and made sure that their people are looked after. So I think more and more of that happens in the big sports and I guess the challenges as some of the smaller sports are professionalised um, how do we make sure the lessons from the major codes are also passed on, passed on to some of the smaller codes? The other one is women's cricket. I mean, women's cricket is only just barely semi-professional in New Zealand um, and is essentially at the same position that men's cricket was about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago from a payments point of view. Yeah. So the, the same yeah. trials and tribulations of men's cricket 15, 20 years ago, uh, the women will probably start to go through soon too.
0: Yeah, I I did read the uh, you know the stuff article on on you know some comments that you made. I, I mean, I I wasn't going to bring it up, and I, I can always sort of cut it if you want. But um, you know your your stance on that has that changed at all?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I I made those comments based on what was in front of me. You know, I was. Um, I was broadcasting for Radio Sport that day. It was, I think it was the final of the women's T20, um, and it was a semi-final or a round-robin game of the men's um, straight afterwards. And, and it, just, it just occurred to me on air at the time, that slightly strange, that um, I was getting paid more than the women athletes that were out there in the middle um, and yet it was the final of the national competition and the men who were playing only a couple of hours later on the same field against the, you know, with the same audience and the same broadcasting um, were also getting much more than the women. So, yeah, so I mean, I I tweeted about it and that caused a bit of a stir. You know, the the, the one regret I have, I guess, is that at the time, I was on the Northern Districts Board. I'm not on the Northern Districts Board anymore. Um, but at the time, I was, in it, and I did, I guess, well, I hadn't thought about the consequences of of that tweet. Um, and, you know, being in a governance role does mean sometimes that you need to uh, zip your mouth, unfortunately, and you can't be quite as um, progressive and... Uh, and open about some of the things as you may want to if you're just an individual. So, um, But it's great to see the progress that's been made since. You know, um, there's a little part of me that's sort of um, a voice in the back of my head that says things wouldn't have progressed as far as they had with that uh, most recent negotiations if I hadn't made the noise that I had and if um, we hadn't seen the public support. It was mixed, I must admit. You know, there's still some people out there um, who, you know, See it a case of if you're not generating the revenue, you don't deserve dibs on it. Um, but you know, that's no different to any startup business where you have to invest more than it's generating to start with, uh, with the hope of a return in the future. Uh, but for some reason, um, people don't treat women's sport as something as a startup business, they don't see it as something that's worth investing in, despite the returns, uh, with the hope of getting a return in the future. So Yeah, it's good to see some progress, and that's just the start of, I guess, getting closer towards a level playing field.
0: Yeah. And and I guess another example of, um, you know, having to have a a fixed skin. So, You know, in terms of your career as a cricketer, you know, and you said before about going out on your own terms and you know, when I was sort of doing a wee a wee research on you, that's the vibe I got. You know, you kind of you, you retired when, when you wanted to retire. Um what was you know, what was the experience like being a being a black cap, I guess?
1: Um it was it was it was different things at different times. Um, and I might uh, I'd always dreamt of playing for New, New Zealand. My grandfather was a, a very good wicketkeeper for Central Districts, um, and a lot of people said to me, you know, he should have played for New Zealand if it wasn't for um, uh, a player by the name of Ken Wadsworth, who was a very flamboyant wicketkeeper batsman. Um, my grandfather was a, a Robin Schofield was a very very high quality gloveman from all accounts, and um, but his batting wasn't great, and and um, you know Kin uh, got picked for New Zealand because he was a better batsman, and um, so I had always wanted to play for New Zealand, not just for myself, but for him. Um, uh, you know, my sister had played for New Zealand before I had, so I had to try and you know catch her up. Yeah. Um, but, my debut for New Zealand was a bit surreal. I, I kind of got caught up late. Um, it was at the town in Wellington, which I'd never played at before, because you don't play at the, um, yep. at uh, that stadium as a domestic player. Uh, it was was it Christmas Eve or it was just before Christmas? And um, And I remember walking up to bat to face Sri Lanka. And it wasn't until I was about halfway out to the middle that I realised that I wasn't watching this on TV, and that this was actually me standing there. Because you get so used to watching these games on the big screen and and um, you know seeing the players and things, the next minute it's actually me facing JS Uh and the nerves were horrendous. Um, I couldn't hit it off the block. The team was struggling. Uh, I batted with Nathan Astor for a while. I could hear people from the, in the crowd like saying, you know, McGlashan, get on with it, you're terrible, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's quite surreal to be standing in the middle of a of an audience of 15,000 people when you can actually hear individuals yelling out your name, saying that you're crap. And I just wanted someone to dig a hole so I could get out of there pretty quickly um, to the point where when I got stumped, it was a ball down the leg side, I think, Sangakara took the bales off, they went upstairs to the third umpire and I just walked off because I was in such a daze and I was so overwhelmed and I just started walking off. I think I got to about the 30 yard circle before I realized that it had gone upstairs. Unfortunately, it was a red light and I could carry on walking because it would have been quite embarrassing to have to turn around and walk yeah. back if it was not out, but it just wasn't a pleasant experience. Was... Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um
1: That's
0: very interesting. And I guess, Obviously, was a big part of that, you know, it sort of seems to me your mind was scrambled when I hear you tell that story. Is that because of how quick the process was? Like, you know, you got called up the next minute you're playing, or was it, was it
1: something else? And, yeah, I mean, it, it, had come, um, it, it had come as a surprise. So I'd been told a couple of days earlier, maybe two days earlier, by Dion Nash, we were playing a domestic game and at Eden Park, and I remember coming in for lunch and seeing that um, New Zealand were playing at the same time. I think it was maybe the last day of the test or last day of the one days. And Brendan McCullum took a really bad blow to the hand, wicket-keeping. And as a wicket-keeper, I knew straight away, I thought, that's pretty serious. Like, that's that doesn't look good. The rest of the team kind of didn't notice it. But as a keeper, you know just by the movements of another player how serious the injury is. And that kind of got me thinking because I knew that Gareth Hopkins was also injured at the time, who had been the backup for Brendan. So it did kind of get me thinking, oh, sh- you know, maybe maybe, maybe I might have a chance. And sure enough, later that day, Dion Nash, who was a selector at the time, came up to me and said, congratulations. Um, Brendan's not able to work at keep in Wellington. Basically, later tonight, you'll fly to Wellington. Some of the players will train tomorrow and then you play the next day. And it was the first time i played... Um, for New Zealand it was a couple of days before Christmas it was a night game so the game was starting at seven o'clock at night at the Cacton from memory I was still shopping for Christmas presents on Lambton key at about 2.30 3 o'clock in the afternoon only four or five hours before yeah. the game um, because there was no formal training I didn't meet the guys that I was playing with until like the night before It was just really surreal. It was the first time I played for New Zealand, and when you play for New Zealand, you don't have to share rooms with anyone. So I'm in this five-star hotel at the Bolton in Wellington, uh, in this huge apartment kind of room, all by myself. Didn't have phone numbers for any other black caps, because I'd never been in the team before. And it was just bizarre. It was just bizarre. Psychologically, I wasn't ready for it. I might have had the skills, but psychologically, I wasn't ready. And that's why when I went back into the team later on in my career, I guess I had more success because I had a better understanding of what it was going to be like, and um, there weren't as many surprises.
0: Mm. So I guess it was only up onwards and upwards from there because, I mean, as, as much as that must have been a, a hugely proud moment for you, your family, You know, you mentioned your sister and that. It it kind of
1: almost sounds like a really horrible experience at the same time. Yeah, it was pretty daunting. um, And it did kind of leave a couple of scars. Um, Yeah, and then I went back to domestic cricket and did well. And um, and I guess I became more comfortable with the thought of being an international player. Up until then, I, I didn't really think that I would be. Um, yeah, you because know, my cricket career is kind of of two halves. There was Central Districts and and Otago, which was me growing up, um, and then I didn't get an Otago contract in this in the year that I played for them, and so came back to Auckland and went from playing first class cricket one year to being the non traveling reserve for the Auckland second eleven the following year. Um, and so I just kind of thought my cricket career was over. I had a couple of years of just playing club cricket and had kind of resigned myself to the fact that that's as good as I was ever going to be. Um, so when I got a chance to play for Northern Districts, it was really kind of a, a, a an opportunity I didn't think was going to arise. And so uh, it was even more of a surprise, I guess, when I got a chance to play for New Zealand uh, the first time round. And, yeah, I just wasn't ready for it.
0: Well, I guess... Um... What What's it like being in the, I want to ask about the broadcasting as well, but being in the governance space and and cricket, um, what's that environment like?
1: Uh, well, the Northern Districts, I guess being a player for so long, I think I was a player for Northern Districts for about eight years. Um, uh, the board was this kind of um, mystical group of people that used to, come around the change room once a year and introduce themselves and then they'd drift off and you'd never see them again and um, we didn't know much about what they did you know I used to show a past. Uh, I used to show an interest in what our marketing team would do because I wanted to know how we could get more people in the door uh, I had an interest yep. in what our commercial guys were trying to do from a sponsorship point of view because you know if I, if I was being asked to to go to an event, I wanted to know who they wanted to impress, what you know, what messages they wanted Northern districts to put across. But the board was always this kind of group of aloof people who, who made decisions that we didn't really know what they were. But in my final few years of playing, I was on a couple of other boards. Uh, I'd done some domestic violence uh, work during the winter, Um, raising awareness of that cause and that had led to me being elected onto the board of uh, rape prevention education which is a not-for-profit doing education in um, the sexual abuse and and positive relationship space so I'd had a couple of years of governance experience with them um, when I finished playing and it kind of meant that um, you I got shoulder tapped to to you know, to be on the Northern Districts board uh, when they had a few people leave to go up to the New Zealand Cricket Board, so it was great because so often those boards are put together of of uh, very well-meaning, uh, experienced people who are lawyers and accountants um, and businessmen, uh, but not often enough do those people have cricketing experience. Um, so when the decisions are being made on the ground about resourcing and and um, uh, who's being employed and what their skill sets need to be. Cricket is often the last thing, and that can be a little bit of a dangerous thing for a sporting body. So, But the governance standards of cricket have improved vastly in, in the time that I have been on, was on the board. Um, much better gender balance. We were one of the first um, boards in New Zealand to, to bring two uh, women directors on, uh, and that led to a whole bunch of things across New Zealand, which has improved. Uh, gender equity and, and the diversity of boards, and that'll mean that cricket's in a much better position in the future.
0: In the broadcasting, so now you all, you know, you do a bit the radio sports stuff, and um, I mean that's how I ended up, you know, meeting up with you. So, what what's that like? I guess it keeps you close to the game as well. So that you know, how are you enjoying that role?
1: Yeah, I, I love it. It's um, it, it's. Uh, well, it's definitely much more intellectual than the television, just um, no to to the guys that do television, but yeah. um, I d- I'd done TV for a while as a player and then obviously doing the rugby centre stuff at Sky TV during the winter, um, and I just wanted to do something different. Radio is much more challenging because you need to fill the space. There's no, You're not just sitting, watching an image and throwing some adjectives over the top of it. Um, you actually need to be able to, articulate what's happening in front of you and paint a picture for the listener as to what it is and provide some colour and context and make sure that there's no gaps and no dead air time. And the people who do radio, I've uh, just got a huge amount of respect for. It's, uh, you know, it's not an easy art to do. And um, you know, to work alongside um, Jeremy Coney in particular, but also Brian Waddle and Malcolm Jordan and... Um, uh, and Kevin Hart and, and Nigel Yeldon and all the guys who do radio is a real uh, honour and a privilege, really. And, you know, we don't quite have the uh, the level of resourcing and money and, and uh, um, assets that television has. But what we lack in um, spend on tech and stuff, we definitely make up for with storytelling and colour and... Color and um, Uh, Yeah, providing a service, which it it, it is much more of a service than a product, I think, is um, the one thing that it comes down Mm to. Sounds
0: great. The last question I I always ask people really is is quite generic. Um, uh, What's next for you? Because, you know, you've got a lot of different things going on. Um, Is it just a matter of, like, yeah, what are you up to? Is it a matter of making the most out of everything, or...?
1: Yeah, that's kind of my philosophy. I mean, I know um, a lot of sportsmen and women are really big on goal setting and um, and I did used to do some of that while I was playing. But to be honest, in life, um, I've actually really enjoyed stepping away from a lot of the things that sport forced me to do. As an athlete, I was forced to train and get fit and I don't go to the gym anymore. And as an athlete, I was forced to um, you know, plan and schedule and, and work out where the future direction was going to be. But, you know, I kind of feel like I've, I've got to give time back to my family now. And, um, you know, those are all things that I couldn't do as an athlete because my schedule was out of my control. So, you know, I'm quite hesitant to set too many um, goals like that because I'm, I'm very much a person who is an opportunist and likes to join dots. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, following you on Twitter meant that there was an opportunity to meet up with you at that Seton Park game. Um, you know, whereas if we plan too much then it, it, le- it doesn't leave any space for for creativity to blossom, so I'm enjoying the local board work, the politics um, works, I've got an l- amazing job here at AET where I get to turn over rocks and, and find absolute treasures and share them with the world um, I'm on the board of Baseball New Zealand which is really exciting with what's happening with the Auckland Tuatata and you know, baseball's got a lot to learn from cricket, cricket's got a lot to learn from baseball, so um, yeah, I'll just keep Knocking on doors and and um, working out where the next one's going to take me to. Just just quickly, actually, I,
0: I, I'll be swallowed alive if I don't if I don't ask this question. Your thoughts on the tour, um, give you a lot of exposure at the moment. Um, you know, it's I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'm certainly seeing a lot about it on online. Um, you must be stoked at, at how that's going.
1: Yeah, baseballs a... Fascinating sport for cricketers, well, I think it should be because cricket and baseball have actually got a lot of uh, similarities with obviously the the fascination with statistics and probability and outcomes. And, um, you know, I had to, when I presented at Nike, when I was doing research uh, on the cricket shoes, we had to present to the American audience about what cricket was. And, and I had to find a way to use baseball and cricket analogies to, to, to help them understand, you know, we we have two innings, they have nine innings, we have 10 outs per innings, they have three outs per innings. Um, if you're caught, you're out. Um you know, if, if you miss the ball three times of baseball, you're out. If we miss it and it hits, wickets wear out. So there's actually a lot of similarities. And I think baseball can learn a lot from cricket in New Zealand in particular because cricket's established as the summer game. And cricket can learn a lot from baseball about the marketing and stuff. But as far as the Tuatata go, it's amazing what they've managed to do. I mean, Ryan Flynn, the former CEO of Baseball New Zealand, you know, this this was his baby, and he managed to get the thing uh, afloat. And uh, I guess it's our job as directors of Baseball New Zealand to try and keep it afloat. Baseball New Zealand's a major shareholder in the Tuatara and um, we do our best to make sure that the team gets on the park. with They've got amazing facilities at QBE Stadium; it's probably the best in Australasia, and it's a wonderful product. Um, you know, people should go along uh, just to enjoy the experience because it's the closest we've got. I guess along with the breakers of that really Americanized. Uh, entertainment factor and um, there's definitely a lot of young Kiwis doing well out of it, kids on scholarships in the States and, um, yeah, it's a sport, I think, that's growing really quickly and hopefully I can contribute a little bit along the way.
0: It'd be a great opportunity to do a bit of a cross code uh, promotion been
1: some there They you know, get yeah, some caps. There's been some talk about that. I mean, when John Follett was at Sky TV, uh, he talked about broadcasting a, a crossover game um, and I think the Tua Tata were talking about trying to do one. Guys like Jacob Oram and Dan Vittori, Kyle Mills, uh, Andre Adams, they're all massive baseball fans, Scotty Starris, and there was talk about a crossover. Um, I guess it's just a challenge trying to get all those guys in the same place at the same time.
0: Definitely. All right, well, Peter, thanks so much for joining me, man. Appreciate your time.
1: Anytime. Thanks, Mike.